So I'll be reading Mark chapter 7 uh, from verse 1 through to the end of the chapter. The Pharisees and some teachers, uh, some of the teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God uh, by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Uh, Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to uh, drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
Then he told her, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephathah, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Keep your Bibles open. We'll mostly be in Mark 7, but we are going to jump around Mark a bit and it'll make it much easier to follow if you have it in front of you there. Let me start in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is true and has authority over us. By your spirit, open our ears to hear what your son Jesus is saying to us today and soften our hearts to trust him in his word. In his name we pray. Amen. Our passage today starts in a very different time and place from Australia, end of 2023. So let me take you back to a world where people are really concerned about clean and unclean. In this world, at a glance, you can tell who's probably safe and who should avoid getting anywhere near. It's a world where you're really concerned about washing your hands, especially after you've been to the marketplace. But it's not just your hands, it's also trolley rails, light switches, any high contact surfaces. Yeah, I'm talking about COVID-19. At the height of the pandemic in 2020, we got a taste of this clean, unclean obsession. You may have shunned people not wearing masks. We had to sanitize everything. In this world, if you're unclean, you're COVID positive, you have to stay home in isolation for seven or 14 days. There were good things about this in keeping vulnerable people safe. But looking back, parts of it feel somewhat extreme now compared to what's normal for us post-pandemic. The Pharisees in this passage are a bit like us during COVID. They're aiming at something good, but they're ending up a bit extreme. Back in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus, God gave his people laws about what made them ceremonially clean or unclean. And unclean people can't approach God for worship, so the laws included ways to deal with your uncleanness. Eat the wrong kind of animals, you're unclean. Get a skin disease, unclean. Touch a dead body, unclean. Even some totally normal bleeding or bodily emissions from women or men make you unclean. So hearing these laws today, while some of them sound like good hygiene, others seem a bit arbitrary. And some things are just inescapable. They're just ordinary parts of human life. So don't think about uncleanness here in terms of hygiene. Think about it spiritually. 
Overall, these laws give the impression that in the ordinary course of human life, people keep becoming unclean. You keep needing to do the rituals to be clean before God. And for some things, rituals don't cut it. You need a blood sacrifice to be right with God again. Now, the Pharisees, they take these Old Testament laws to a whole other level. They add all sorts of extra regulations in what they call the tradition of the elders. And the way Mark describes in verses 3 and 4, it's, it's meant to sound extreme and silly. Uh, if you look at your NIV footnotes, one of the early manuscripts, even as they watch couches, just making it even more extreme. But the Pharisees think they're doing the right thing. They're the good religious people of the day, and they want everyone to know it. So the Pharisees call out Jesus' disciples, and by extension Jesus as their teacher, for not living up to the same standards, for not being as religious as them. Jesus' response here should surprise us. He doesn't say, good job for trying, but your efforts are a bit misdirected. He doesn't start by explaining what the Old Testament clean-unclean laws actually meant. Instead, he calls out the Pharisees for being heartlessly religious. Jesus hates people being heartlessly religious. In verses 6 and 7 here, Jesus quotes Isaiah. And Jesus tells the Pharisees that they're hypocrites who say they're worshipping God, but really they aren't. Their hearts are far from God and it shows. Instead of loving God's word, the Pharisees teach rules that humans made up. Jesus doesn't appreciate their zeal or their religious effort. He calls them out for their dodgy hearts. And Jesus goes even further in verses 8 and 9. He explains that the Pharisees are using their traditions to actually veto God's word. The Pharisees aren't just adding unnecessary bits. They're removing what God said his people should do. In verse 13, Jesus says they do this in lots of ways. But in between, he gives us one specific example. And that's the example of family. God had commanded his people to honour their father and mother. The family unit is a good part of God's design for this life, and caring for family is a right priority for God's people. But instead of honouring their parents by looking after them in their old age, the Pharisees have invented this religious loophole they call korban. Just say, the money that I should set aside to look after my parents, I've donated that all to the temple. Now, you don't need to actually care for your ageing parents, just donate the money to God. You've made your life easy, and bonus points, you look really religious for giving all this money to God. Yet in doing so, they've actually ignored God's explicit command to honour your parents. Now, Jesus, he hates this kind of religious posturing. Steve showed us last week that Mark is presenting Jesus in these chapters as the king who cares, but these Pharisees don't care for the elderly at all. Yes, Jesus does redefine the priority of family. For some people, following Jesus will mean being rejected by your biological family. And for all of us, the local church becomes our spiritual family. But we're still meant to live in a way that loves and honours our parents as much as we can while putting Jesus first. It's part of our Christian witness. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says something similar in thinking about how the church should look after widows, those who no longer have a husband to provide for them. If these Christian widows have no one to provide for them, then the church should provide. But if they've got biological family, 
their biological family should provide for them. If, as a Christian, you don't provide for your family's basic needs, Paul says, you've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. Part of honouring and witnessing to God is following God's good design for families in this life. So the first application for us in this passage today is a warning. Are we in danger of being heartlessly religious? Are we in danger of using good religious things as an excuse to not put in the hard yards to care for people we should be caring for, especially our immediate family? There's a problem if all the ways that we're busily serving with church means that we aren't there for our spouse or kids, or that we're never home with our parents and siblings and we just treat the family home like an Airbnb, or we leave our housemates to clean up after us because we're too busy going out being godly. More broadly, are we in danger of using Christian traditions to veto God's word? Of ignoring the plain meaning of scripture because our church always reads it in a different way? As a Bible teaching church at KPC, we want God's word to be our ultimate authority. So we need to always be open to God's word correcting our understanding or practice. But beyond those examples, Jesus has identified an even bigger problem, the state of our heart, which takes us to our second point on the outline. In verse 14, Jesus calls the crowd together so that everyone can hear the answer to the original question, why are your disciples eating with unwashed hands? Jesus' answer is simple, but cutting. It's not what goes into someone that makes them unclean, like eating unclean food or eating with unwashed hands. It's what comes out of a person that defiles them, that makes them unclean before God. And if we're thinking like a Jewish disciple, this answer should actually confuse us. Because while the Pharisees have added lots of extra regulations around ritual washing, the original cleanliness laws come directly from God's word. God told his people, for example, to not put pork into their bodies. So has Jesus just done what he called out the Pharisees for doing? Has he just created a new interpretation that vetoes God's word by saying that it doesn't matter what you put into yourself? No, Jesus does have the authority to say what he just did because he's the son of God who teaches with authority, as Mark showed us back in chapter 1. Rather than the Pharisees, whose hearts are far from God as they follow human rules, Jesus' heart beats as one with his father's. Jesus hasn't vetoed God's word. He's actually revealed the true reason underlying those clean, unclean laws. Jesus has revealed the point of those laws as the one who fulfills them. In verse 17, Jesus' disciples ask him about what he said. And Jesus explains that food never had the power to actually defile you. It just goes in one end, through the stomach, out the other. What really matters, what really makes you clean or unclean before God is the state of your heart. Now we normally think heart equals emotions, but in Bible speak, your heart is more than just your feelings. It's what makes you you. It's where your desires and will and dreams and understanding comes from. It's more like what we mean today when we say, follow your heart. But following your heart can be dangerous because Jesus' description of our hearts in verses 21 to 23 is an indictment on us all. 
For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus is saying that our real problem is our evil hearts. You might like to think that you're basically good, that you haven't done anything too bad, but Jesus cuts past that surface image. Our own evil thoughts betray the state of our hearts, even if we never act on those thoughts, even if nobody else ever knows about them. When we address someone with our eyes who's not our spouse, when we're so angry at someone that we wish they were gone, we wish they were dead to us, when we use our words to cut down others so that we feel better, all the ways that we personally excuse our faults and puff up our own achievements. Who here can honestly say that if all their thoughts were on display for anyone to see, there's nothing there that they'd be ashamed of, nothing there that they'd feel guilty about? Jesus is not using hyperbole here. Jesus has revealed that our real problem is our evil hearts. Now, evil hearts are not easy to change. Even a single behaviour flowing out of your evil hearts is hard to reform. Say you want to rein in your anger. It's easy to be sorry in the moment when you see how your anger hurts those around you. You say you want to change then. But that doesn't mean your blood won't start to boil the next time something seems unfair to you. Keeping saying sorry isn't enough. Just like a New Year's resolution, willpower can change you for a little while, but it rarely lasts. And if it does last, if your willpower actually stops you doing that particular evil behaviour, well then, you're going to start to feel proud about how you did this by your effort, and you're back in evil thoughts. If we're trying to change to prove ourselves to God, to other people, or to ourselves, that won't work. That ultimately makes us the centre of our goodness drive. It becomes for our glory. And everything revolving around us is a really great definition of sin. We end up with the, like the Pharisees at the start of this chapter with damnable good works. Having an evil heart is something that we can't fix ourselves no matter how hard we try. We may make small gains, but we can't fix the big picture. So what are we to do? Well, in exposing our evil heart problem, Jesus has also revealed what God's cleanliness laws were always pointing towards. We keep becoming unclean in the ordinary course of human life, not because of what foods we eat, but because of the state of our evil human hearts. This is why Mark explains at the end of verse 19 that in what Jesus has said, he's declared all foods clean. As Christians, we don't need to follow the Old Testament cleanliness laws anymore because we now have their fulfillment. Those laws reveal to us that we're unclean before God because of our evil hearts. And they point out that we need God to provide a solution, to make us clean, to make us right before him. Ritual washing is not going to cut it. We'll never be able to rack up enough good deeds to outweigh our evil hearts. And we can't reform our evil hearts just by trying harder. We need a sacrifice that works. We need a sacrifice that can pay for our evil and sin and make us clean before God. We need a solution from God.
Which brings us to our final point. Mark doesn't spell out what the solution is here, not directly, but as a master storyteller, he's woven in all the clues that we need to see that Jesus is the one who solves our heart problem and Jesus' solution is available for everyone. Reading Mark at points like this is a bit like watching a Marvel superhero movie. You can just focus on the story in front of you and you can appreciate that story, but there's these connections to what's come before and what's going to come after and you can appreciate it so much more when you understand those connections. That's what we're going to do with the heart solution for this passage. We're going to follow the links Mark's put in forwards and backwards to see those clues. So get your Bibles ready to follow along with me as I take us for a whirlwind tour through Mark to confirm for yourself that what I'm saying aligns with God's word. Now here in chapter 7, verse 23 has left us asking, how can we be clean before God then? Mark's already given us the answer to that question. Jesus. Flick back to chapter 1, verse 40. And there we've got a man with leprosy. Um, that makes him ceremonially unclean. And he comes up to Jesus and he begs Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I am willing, Jesus answers. And he touches the man and says, be clean. According to God's law, touching an unclean person like that should make you ceremonially unclean. But Jesus can touch this man and that man becomes clean. And the same thing happens in chapter 5 with the bleeding woman. Her painful condition of endless ongoing bleeding makes her ceremonially unclean. But she just touches the edge of Jesus' robes and she becomes clean. And Jesus, in talking to her afterwards, declares that her faith has healed her. Or, it's the same word in the Greek, her faith has saved her. So, even before we get to chapter 7, Mark's already shown us that Jesus is willing and able to make people clean through faith in him. Now, flick back to chapter 7, which extends this picture. First up, in verses 24 to 30, we've got a Gentile woman, a non-Jew, who asks Jesus to cast the unclean spirit out of her daughter. Jesus replies euphemistically, and he's basically saying... I'm here for the people of Israel first, and you're not one of them. Now, that might sound unkind, but remember, Mark is showing us here that Jesus is the king who cares. This statement actually creates an opportunity for the woman to confirm and display her faith in Jesus. Using the same illustration as Jesus has used, the woman agrees that she has no claim on Israel's Messiah, yet she trusts that the Lord Jesus has so much to give that there are leftovers enough for the Gentiles. If you were here last week, Steve traced through the breadcrumbs here and he connected this story with Jesus feeding a crowd back in chapter 6 and forward in chapter 8. Let's briefly have a look at those. If you flick back a page to chapter 6, we saw that Jesus is the better king than King Herod because Jesus provides for his people Israel. He does this by teaching them in physically feeding them, and in healing them. And at the end, there are 12 baskets of leftovers. That's telling us that there are enough leftovers for all the tribes of Israel. So here in chapter 7, when we've got this story of leftovers for a Gentile woman, 
That's confirming one implication of what Jesus had just said about clean and unclean. Not being Jewish doesn't make you unclean. And so there are leftovers for Jesus' ministry for the Gentiles. That is, while Jesus' earthly mission was first to the people of Israel, what he achieves in his death and resurrection is for all of us, Jew and Gentile alike. And we see this confirmed in the next two stories. In chapter 7, verse 31, Jesus goes back to the Decapolis, which is a Gentile region. So the man they bring him to heal is most likely a Gentile. And Jesus heals the Gentile man. And then the next story, Jesus feeds a crowd who are most likely Gentile too, just like he did in Israel territory. And this time there are seven baskets of leftovers. And in the Bible, seven is a number of completeness. This is Mark saying there are leftovers enough for all the Gentiles. Mark is making the point that Jesus' solution is for everyone. But more than that, Mark is hinting that Jesus' solution is about more than ceremonial cleanliness or physical healing. Jesus' solution is going to fix our evil hearts. The healing at the end of chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, isn't just Jesus healing a Gentile man. Only Mark includes this particular story, and he deliberately includes the story here of a man who is deaf and mute. For when this man is healed, his ears are opened, and now he has ears to hear Jesus clearly. That's what Jesus said discipleship was all about in chapter 4. Let the one who has ears hear. And when this man is healed, his tongue is loosened, and he begins to speak plainly. And in chapter 8, Peter's going to have his tongue loosened, and he's going to confess that Jesus is the Christ, as a disciple should. And Jesus is going to speak plainly about his death and resurrection even though the disciples won't understand it yet. And it's through the disciples that Mark really clues us into the need for a heart solution that only Jesus can provide. Just before our chapter, in chapter 6, verse 52, Mark told us that the disciples hadn't understood about Jesus' miraculous feeding because their hearts were hard. So he's told us the disciples have hard hearts, and then straight away, the next story, we hear that the Pharisees have hearts that are far from God and that our real problems are evil hearts. That's Mark's way of saying everyone needs a heart solution. And then flick forward to chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. In talking about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, which Steve explained last week was our hard hearts, rejecting Jesus our king, Jesus asks several things to the disciples in these verses. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? He asks. That is, do you still have a heart problem? And Jesus continues, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? They, the disciples need Jesus to open their ears so they can hear him clearly, just like the deaf man Jesus heals in chapter 7. They need Jesus to open their eyes so they can see him clearly, just like the blind man Jesus is going to heal next in chapter 8. The disciples don't get it yet because Jesus hasn't died and risen again yet. But Mark is giving us now all the clues so that we, this side of the cross, can understand. We can understand that what Jesus has done for us solves our heart problem. Mark is illustrating that Jesus' heart solution will allow us to see Jesus clearly as the Son of God, to hear God's word clearly, and to have soft hearts 
hearts which aren't callous from evil, but are soft and responsive to Jesus. And there are two final clues that Mark gives us to piece this solution all together. If you're still in your Bibles, flick forward to chapter 10 and find verse 45. This is a big theme verse in Mark. And here in this verse, Jesus tells us that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark's way of explaining that in dying on the cross, Jesus bore the sins of the world. Jesus carried in himself our evil hearts to pay the price, the ransom, that we deserve to pay. Like the Old Testament cleanliness laws pointed to, Jesus is the true blood sacrifice who pays for our uncleanness so that we can be forgiven by God. The other clue is in chapter 14, verse 24. In celebrating the Lord's Supper, like we did together last week, we're reminded how this meal explains what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus' body given for us. Jesus' blood poured out for many. And Mark, in chapter 14, verse 24, particularly notes that Jesus' blood is the blood of the covenant. And for his early readers who knew their Old Testament, there's only one covenant that they're expecting, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Jump with me back to the end of Jeremiah 31. This is the last passage we'll look at. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah repeatedly warns Israel throughout his book that they have a heart problem. Their evil hearts are why they keep disobeying God and breaking his covenant. In Jeremiah 31, God promises them a new covenant, one that his people won't break. And in verse 33, he tells them, you're not going to break it because I'm promising you a heart solution. God himself will write his law on their hearts. God will give his people the desire and the ability to actually live his way. That's the covenant that Jesus brings in when he dies in our place on the cross. As Mark put it earlier, we receive the benefits of what Jesus has done for us simply by repenting and believing. If you're not a Christian yet, or you're not sure if you are one, this is how you become a Christian. Repenting just means admitting that you've been living the wrong way and turning to aim to live God's way. You do this by believing and trusting that Jesus has earned forgiveness for you on the cross. And repenting and believing is how anyone continues as a Christian. It's what we all need to keep doing. The rest of the New Testament expands on this, explaining that when we become a Christian, we get the Holy Spirit living inside us. And it's the Spirit who unites us by faith to Jesus so that we can benefit from what Jesus has done for us. United to Christ, we're declared right before God. We died and rose again with Jesus. Our evil hearts were paid for on the cross. We're forgiven and free. But also, united to Christ, we have Jesus living in us, shaping us to be more and more like him in character. Our identity has changed. We're no longer sinners with an evil heart. We are now perfect in God's sight, adopted as his children, sharing Jesus' relationship with his heavenly father. And the spirit works in us so that more and more we live out of our new identity. More and more we think and act in good ways rather than evil ways. We'll never totally be free of evil thoughts in this life and we can't kill our sin by our own efforts or willpower alone. But 
when we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit, we're being changed from the inside out. And this is the secret to true, lasting change as a Christian. To keep coming back to the gospel, to what Jesus has done for us. A pastor in the UK, Tim Chester, has a great book on this called You Can Change, if you want to think about this topic more. It's a wonderful read because it doesn't beat us up about our sin to try and get us to change out of feeling guilty. Instead, it shows us the depths of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us, of our new identity in Christ. Because that's the only motivation for heart change that will ultimately work. To repent of both our sinful desires and our efforts to reform our hearts on our own. And to believe the gospel truth that Jesus really has forgiven us and written his law in our hearts. To be reminded that God is great so we don't have to be in control. That God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. That God is good, so we don't need to look elsewhere. And that God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. If you've been convicted by your sin of of your sin by this passage, and you want to change, remember first that Jesus died for you, and you died with him. Remember that you're already forgiven in God's sight. And knowing that we're already forgiven, we're free to admit to others that we're struggling. Confessing our sins to another believer that we trust means that they can pray with us about it and they can keep reminding us of the gospel truths that we need to hear. The Holy Spirit always works through God's word, both as we study it directly, but also as other believers speak it to us. Over time, the Spirit works these gospel truths deep into our heart strengthening us in cooperating with him as we fight our sin. This is one of the great things about God's design of church, that we can encourage one another in faith and godliness. And we do all this knowing that Jesus has won the ultimate victory over sin and death. No matter how slow our progress may feel in this life, Jesus will complete it on the day when he returns. Jesus is the solution to our heart problem And his solution is for everyone, even you and me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are sorry for our evil hearts. We're sorry for the selfish thoughts and desires we entertain and for the evil actions they spill over into. Thank you that you have died in our place, paying for our sin. By your spirit, please keep shaping us more and more to be like you in character. Strengthen us to be hating evil killing our sin and desiring to live your way under your lordship. Amen.